Welcome to a special Star Wars Christmas edition of the Political Monitor podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. In today's show, we talk about a certain high-profile movie, the Democratic presidential debate, the Republican presidential debate, and we bid farewell to Lindsey Graham. So I am joined this week, as I am virtually every week, by managing editor John Van Fleet. Hello, John. Merry Christmas, Clay. Merry Christmas to you. Well, not not quite yet. And by reporter Ella Nilsson. Hi, Ella. Hi, Clay. So I think we have to start off with the most important question that's on probably listeners' minds this week, which is, uh, who among us have, has seen the new Star Wars movie? I will say that I have. I have as well. Uh, John? Not. <clears throat> the force is not with me. Force has not yet awakened. It's true. Uh, but tomorrow is my big plan. I went to the movie theaters on Friday, the the day after its first showing. I think it was officially its its opening day, mm-hmm. and I had crowd panic attack and ran out of the theaters. I swear. Uh, the lines throughout the theater were so long. Just to get in, uh, I, I could barely make it to the ticket booth. And even though tickets were still on sale, uh, the thought of like elbowing my way to try and get seats for myself and my three children next to each other, four consecutive seats, I thought was not worth it. And we left. Yeah, that's probably a smart plan. I, I'm never one to, I'm, I'm just not interested in trying to beat back crowds to be the first one to see the movie. I always like to wait a week when there's nobody there and then go see it. But by the same token... So how do you explain that you were you did not Oh, because um, because uh, I went with uh, my colleague Jeremy Blackman and his lovely girlfriend, and they bought me a ticket in advance. I got there right when the movie started, so there were no crowds. Were they holding a seat for you? Yes. So it worked out fantastic. Went for, for, for you, yes. Yeah. Um, I heard... That there may have been some quasi illegal activity going on in that movie theater, Ella. <laughs> that you guys smuggled in Taco Bell into the movie theater. Admit it. Um, well, maybe they did. I was not oh, part of I that. Say, <laughs> I have to say that just sounds disgusting to me. But, but whatever. I, I personally, you know, I generally I like to go like like Ella. Uh, like you were saying, I like to go and just kind of be the one person in the theater. But the thing is, when you actually have a big opening and there's the chance to kind of be part of a crowd watching a movie, I, I enjoy that too. Mm. Where, did uh, any of the did people applaud in the movie theater? I'm always curious about that. Um, actually, no, people didn't. I was kind of surprised. Um, but there was, I do have to say, I feel like uh, you can kind of tell how successful a movie is with all of the, like, because I don't think a lot of audiences really react, or I don't hear a lot of audiences reacting in movies. Maybe I'm just going to boring indie movies <laughs> too much where everybody's uh they're not, just quietly yeah, weeping in their exactly. seats um but i thought i felt like there was a lot of laughter and a lot of like i don't know if there were any gas but i felt like there was a lot of audience reaction so that's right. usually pretty good for because of course indicator. there is that that point in the movie where i'm not um, like, well no no um the uh I, but actually i i ended up going i was on there on thursday and then i went again on 
On Sunday, actually. You've seen mm. it twice. I have seen it twice. I'm planning on going and, to see and, it a second time and this weekend. Why is it that good? It's it's entertaining. It's fun. And and it's nice to see it with people. And actually, both of the showings I uh, attended, people did applaud. Both at the beginning and the end. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, and, and are you seeing it in... At the same theater that you saw it initially, or you? Seen I did, it? I did, yeah. But you know, so wait I'm, a second. You've already seen it twice, mm-hmm. and you're going to see it a third time. I, I don't know. I, I probably, but that's not actually scheduled. That's okay. not planned at the moment. <laughs> I'm going to go see it with my parents up north because they haven't seen it yet. I have not yet seen it in the IMAX 3D version, so that might be the the third. Oh, that's viewing. true. I didn't. I also just. I didn't even see it in regular 3D. I just saw it in plain old two dimensional. Well, here's where I am in my my sci-fi experience. For Christmas, I didn't ask for a lot, but I did in fact ask for 2001: A Space Odyssey because no finer movie has ever been made. I've never seen that movie. It's it's pretty good. I I don't know. I can't recall. Except you have three and a half hours to set aside. <laughs> For some very slow shots of spaceships. True. Actually, just a lot of slow shots in general. I don't know. That's the evolution of man. It's 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 our it's our past, our present, and our future. And it is quite literally Kubrickian, given that it Mm. was directed by Stanley Kubrick. Anyway, um, so moving on to actually the politics of this all. Although we could we could always have a discussion (laughs) about. Can we just talk about Star Wars? About the political. I'm excited. Let's talk about Stanley Kubrick. (laughs) About the political dimensions of the prequels, which are are interesting. I read an article online just a couple of days ago about that. Um, Ellen, you were actually down in Manchester on Saturday evening when Mm -hmm. the. Democratic candidates for president had their second debate. Yes, at Saint Anselm College. So you were kind of taking in the scene. So tell us a little bit about that and and what you saw. Yeah, I was. Well, actually, it was kind of funny because I did not really watch much of the debate itself because I was uh, doing, like you said, kind of a sights and sounds color piece of the debate. So I uh, was <laughs> mostly just writing throughout the entire debate. So I went back and watched it the day after. Um, but yeah, as for the, the space where the debate was held in, I, um, was invited by Neil Levesque, who's the director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics to, um, be in actual debate hall, which was great because no other media besides ABC who was running the debate were allowed inside the debate hall. And, uh, as it turns out, ABC was not pleased that (laughs) I was in the debate hall, um, I guess the <laughs> the uh, I was not I was not actually interviewing people. I was walking around, however, and taking notes and kind of uh, describing, you know, just writing down notes of what I was seeing. Um, had done some interviews earlier on in the day, and a couple of uh, PR women at ABC told asked came up and asked me to, uh, or told me I should say that I could not report on anything that happened inside the debate hall. So Which not is a in- somewhat ironic thing to try to tell someone, right. given that that's actually where it's the news is going to happen. And I'm pretty sure that audience members were allowed to tweet, but I was like, they they told me that I was on lockdown. Um, unless I would, they said, unless you would like us to escort you to the media center, and the media filing center was on the hockey rink, which was like a five-minute walk across campus. So um, it was in a completely different building. So I stayed, and I... Telling a reporter that you are not allowed to use your powers of observation while you're standing here. Right. 
It seems rather unenforceable. <laughs> Shut your frankly, eyes. Frankly, <laughs> that is exactly so. I did. I got the call from Ella. They're telling me. They, they're telling me that I can't do. Can't report. Well, not really. <laughs> they're not blindfolding you. They're right. not putting you in a dark room. So you can be there. You have an invitation. You can, you can use your phone to dictate notes if they take I, away your... I actually use my phone to type out notes on my little notepad. So there you go. And uh, we, we crafted a plan. You know, so how did it how did how did it transpire? It was uh, it transpired well. I mostly just kind of spent the rest of the time that I had taking more notes and uh, kind of just walking around and schmoozing with some of the people that I know in the uh, Democratic Party. And then I stayed until the opening statements. So I kind of uh, was lucky enough. I had talked to a couple of students that work in the St. Anselm Student Ambassador Program. So they, for the past couple of days, had been standing in for all of the candidates um, as ABC was preparing and sort of lining up all of its shots and getting everything. So I talked to them about just like the, you know, pretty incredible amount of preparation that goes into pulling off this huge live TV event um, and then right at the beginning uh, there was a nice little personal moment between David Muir and Martha Raddatz the two ABC moderators where they kind of they were out on stage about ready to start introducing you know everybody to the the candidates and and go live and um, Martha Raddatz reached out to David Muir and kind of adjusted his tie and they said some some uh, some kind of jokey, funny things to the audience, and, and uh, so I included that in my story. Um, and we did not get an angry call from ABC, or we have not yet gotten an angry call from ABC. <laughs> well, and maybe maybe they're full of the seasonal spirit. Maybe. Right now. Um, it, was an interesting, it, was, it was an interesting debate in a way more because of what didn't happen at it than what did, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of in the lead-up to the debate, everyone was very much focused on the the spat between the Clinton and Sanders right. campaigns. There was a data breach um, in kind of the master Democratic National Committee voter file. So in other words, there's one master file, but then candidates are able to kind of keep their own notes and make their own kind of subdirectories of voters. Th- those are supposed to be only accessible by the individual campaigns. Somehow... Uh, the Sanders campaign was able to take a peek at what the Clinton campaign was doing, and uh, this led almost immediately to everyone flipping out. Um, yeah. the, the Clinton campaign flipped out because they are—they have some Obama team folks who are very, you know, very invested in the digital strategy and and the kind of this micro targeting. I mean, also for that matter, the Clinton campaign is in very tight races in Iowa and New Hampshire potentially with with the Sanders campaign. This the Sanders campaign then kind of flipped out in in response because they felt as though, because what the Democratic National Committee did, of course, was shut the Sanders campaign out of the database altogether for a day or two. And, um, you know, the, the Sanders campaign then, you know, turned to their network of small donors saying, you know, look, this proves that the National Democrats are against us. It proves that there's no way that we're getting a fair shake. And so I think everyone, you know, given the, the tempers flaring and that, that this was all happening on Friday and the debate was Saturday, a lot of people expected, you know, kind of Sanders and Clinton to go after each other on that. And that just, you know, didn't really happen. I think that most of the bickering on that particular issue has been, <clears throat> excuse me, has been um, with the campaigns rather than the candidates themselves. Um, and yeah, I, I do agree. I mean, they had a very kind of 
I wouldn't say lighthearted, but very cordial exchange. And, and basically, you know, Clinton said, I, you know, we should agree to put this all behind us. And I accept Sanders apologized. She accepted his apology and said she wanted to put it all behind her. Um, but then I think the day after the campaigns were kind of right back at it. <laughs> um, I mean, calling each other out. It would be a lot more fun if this was actually a fair fight. That's true. But, you know, John, it's it's interesting, though, because I think you see kind of here the tension. There's a real tension in the Sanders campaign because I think Bernie Sanders himself, like the person, he's very invested in, you know, he doesn't want to run what he perceives as a negative campaign. Mm -hmm. Like he even called for it like a quasi negative ad to be taken off the air, mm -hmm. the TV broadcast ad. He's like, this isn't, isn't the campaign I'm, I want to run. You know, he very, he's trying very hard to not make it personal. And yet at the same time, you know, his campaign knows how it's doing in Iowa and New Hampshire. They're leading in New Hampshire by a bit. They're within striking distance in Iowa. And his campaign wants to win. And I think there are a lot of people in his campaign that are have a much more aggressive tone and a much more kind of, you know, strident approach towards Hillary Clinton, certainly, than, their, than the man at the top does. Mm -hmm. So it feels like there's almost a disconnect a little bit between, like, the campaign and the, right. the man. I don't know. I don't know what your what your impression is. Uh, I think you know his performance of the debate. Just kind of stick on that for a little bit. I I think he is. He, a lot of the focus was on how tough Hillary Clinton is and how she's a fighter and a digger and all that sort of stuff. I think he was masterful. You know, he's complimentary of her, and you know, so it's very effusive. You know, like he. So he's not appearing as attacking, but he he comes at her hard on the issues of Wall Street money and her past and her electability. And so he he doesn't skirt around those issues. He goes right full force into her, essentially her, her perceived weak spots, but yet does so in a respectful and dignified way. And that's what I meant by it would be a lot of fun if this was really a fair fight and that the voters actually mattered in this election, given the fact that pretty much all of the delegates and the superdelegates have made up their mind that they are going to go for Hillary Clinton. So it would be a lot of fun if we actually had a open and honest Democratic primary. Well, and this is, of course, one of the things that um, Bernie Sanders and then, you know, much before that, you know, the Martin O'Malley campaigns kind of were um, unhappy about was the scheduling and number of the Democratic debates, because there simply are there are not a lot of debates. A lot of them are at kind of odd and out-of-the-way times. And, you know, there's there's definitely a, a, a feeling that the party is, you know, in the bag for, for Hillary Clinton and that they're not truly trying to even out the, the playing field for everybody else. Um, More than it, a feeling. There's a, there's a body of evidence. That right, 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 right. It, 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 is, it is certainly suggestive. Mm -hmm. The... the, the I mean, the, the debate schedule in and of itself, you know, the mere fact that there was a debate that was on a on a Saturday and that happened to be, you know, the day after Star Wars opened <laughs> for 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 that matter. Um, so uh, do we want to talk about the Republicans a little a week earlier? We didn't actually have our podcast last that's week. That's right. So we didn't we didn't get much to, to touch on. I can't that. even remember what happened last week. It, it does seem like it was a while ago. Uh, John, if you have any specific memories about that or points that you wanted to make. Um, I 
So I watch the debate, and then you know I, I read the coverage the next day, and and I I was struck by an uh, Associated Press story that was like Jeb Bush had such a strong performance, and it was like, so I'm a member of the media, right? And and I'm still sometimes shocked by the media's portrayal of something that I have a completely different feeling about. So I watch it and I, and I felt like, especially in Bush's closing remarks, like he, he stumbles, he stutters, he doesn't speak in full sentences. And it's like your closing remarks. This is where it's a, it's a slow ball right over the plate. You can knock this out of the park, but yet he fumbles and bumbles and isn't able to deliver the message. So I thought that Jeb Bush failed to capitalize on what he was there to do. Sure, he took his shots at, at Trump. Sure, he did his little sparring with Trump. But I, I thought he was ineffective. Mm -hmm. But yet the Associated Press story is like, wow, Jeb Bush had a great debate. He did exactly what he needed to do. I'm like, what the? And this this was the debate that was held at the Venetian in, yeah. in Las Vegas. Um, as, uh, as some people were pointing out, holding a, a debate, you know, kind of in, in Vegas where... Uh, you know, there's some, I believe, some Trump real estate investments and the like. Does does seem a little a little uh, odd on its face, but of course, it's an important early early voting state. Um, yeah, this is what I also what where I recall that it was a, a lot of the media focus, at least, was on exchanges between Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. um, you know, both of whom are these younger senators. They're both before they're only born about five months apart. And, you know, kind of a real struggle for the soul of the party between them, because yeah. even though they're both establishment to an extent, both being senators, you know, Cruz is by far the outsider. Uh, you know, Rubio is by far kind of, you know, being embraced by more mainstream uh, uh, Republicans in the party, um, mainstream and moderates. And so it's, you know, so there's a lot riding on kind of that, that contest between the two of them. You know, and, and yet again, there's the, the evidence that whenever you have all the Republicans on the debate stage, it's really not Donald Trump's milieu at all. You know, he's, he's basically faded at almost all, except for the first, except for their first Republican debate when he had some memorable lines. Basically, every GOP debate since then, Trump has, has been a non-factor. Yeah, I think more so than anything he said. Yeah, it has been interesting. I mean, the media, I feel like, doesn't really pick up on really much that Trump says at the debates. It's mostly what he says at his events. But what they do pick up on is all the weird faces that he makes at the debates, which <laughs> I just saw so many Trump face memes happening um, all at once. Yeah, I kind of... Um, you know, there was a lot of focus, and I think, you know, I think some people leading up to the debate were like, oh, is there going to be a Cruz-Trump shakedown, you know, because now Cruz mm -hmm. is leading in Iowa, and so, and Trump had been kind of saying some disparaging things about Cruz in the days leading up to the debate, um, but what we saw was no, zero uh, animosity between the two on the stage. As a matter of fact, they were very friendly towards each other. Um I have to say that I was a little, you know, I've, I've thought that consistently thought that Marco Rubio uh, has been very good um, on the debate stage. And I think that he's just a very good debater. But I, I kind of found myself getting a little bored during the during the Cruz uh, Rubio exchanges. And I actually kind of want to put in a little plug for Rand Paul. Um, I think that even though he is, um, you know, clearly not really doing very well or going anywhere. I think he also kind of has been consistently a good debater. Um, mm -hmm. 
maybe unfortunately <laughs> people are not really listening to what he has to say, but I think that his performances have been good and he's always kind of made me sit up and take notice when, when he speaks. So. Right. So this is the debate where Christie said he would shoot, uh, shoot down a Russian plane if it went over the no f uh, a perceived no-fly zone. Mm -hmm. And Rand Paul quickly was like, well, this is your candidate if you want to start World War III right. or something to that effect. Yeah. A no-fly zone over Syria, yes. I think, is what we what we'd be talking about. Yes, yeah. that is that's what they were talking. Yeah, about. I mean, and I th I think this is very this is a very interesting point because Rand Paul, you know, almost you know, un, you know, basically at this point we've talked about you know, there's the outsider candidates, there's the establishment candidates. That's generally speaking how people talk about the two groups of GOP presidential uh, hopefuls. You then have Rand Paul, who in many ways is kind of a party of one. You know, he, he got in in many ways to carry on the legacy of his father as a very libertarian-minded kind of, of presidential candidate. And a lot of people before this campaign started thought that Rand Paul had a real shot at, at kind of breaking through to a broader, a broader audience. And he does have a, a message that is different mm -hmm. from the other Republicans. But, um, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, that just hasn't proved to be the case most of the time this year. The other thing within the Republican Party that I uh, think has been kind of an interesting dynamic is that um, among the governors, uh, so like Kasich, Christie, and Bush, and I obviously Pataki is a governor, but uh, it's not really part of the, the main stage. Um, I think that I've been hearing more and more people saying that they're interested in Christie now, which Christie has definitely been sort of picking up some some steam in New Hampshire after, you know, the union leader endorsement. And then he got a, rolled out a bunch of endorsements of uh, well-known New Hampshire politicians. Um, but I, I think it's kind of interesting. I was at a John Kasich event last night and I felt like Kasich, Kasich's sort of been, I think, really struggling to kind of define himself. Um, he's been, he's the guy that's campaigning on domestic issues and balancing budgets and propping up the economy. And at this point, the focus of what everybody's talking about has shifted very much from uh, economic issues to foreign policy issues. And Kasich's, you know, track record on that is being a member of the House, you know, a couple decades ago um, and being on the Armed Services Committee. When he talks about that, nobody really listens to him. Um, and whereas Christie is, you know, has the whole New Jersey during 9-11 thing down and, and looks very tough, um, even though I'm sure some in his state disagree with some of the things that he's saying. Um, but it's been kind of interesting for me to see that kind of Christie has kind of emerged as the kind of strongest uh, candidate when it comes to all of the governors. Um, and I think that I was at a Casey event last night and the the only one guy that I talked to, the voter in the audience that I talked to said that, um, you know, he thought Kasich was good, but he he likes Christie and he said he liked him because he seems more forceful. Although even today, Politico has has a big front page story about the possible reemergence of Jeb right here in New Hampshire. So. You know, certainly that is the, I mean, that's the most crowded and contested lane is that kind of establishment, you know, figure mm -hmm. and, and who will, you know, who will, uh, who will kind of emerge from there unscathed um, or not unscathed. Everyone's pretty scathed at this moment. Think, the, yeah. the point is who actually emerges at all. Today, we had a day in the life of Jeb Bush right. uh, in our newspaper. Elodie Reed, one of our newest reporters, 
followed Jeb on the trail on Saturday. He had five scheduled stops starting at eight in the morning, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, one was canceled because it was Dover. Yeah, it was in Dover, and the uh, the airman who would kill who was killed was a, a Dover High School graduate. Mm-hmm. So he canceled that stop, but he had four and uh, roughly twelve and a half hour day and Lodi. Followed him around for all of it, and uh, she got a lot of behind-the-scenes access. So, you know, she she was there as as Jeb kind of like, before he goes into these events, he kind of is like jumping up and down, like, whew, 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 <laughs> and like jumps in and takes a stage. And, you know, she heard him deliver his lines about, you know, Donald Trump, he's a jerk. I got to get something off my chest. Donald Trump's a jerk. And, um, you know, so he is... Some people would say less scripted. Other people would just say he's following a different script. That he is, he's trying to become more forceful. He's trying to appear higher energy. And uh, that's something that you picked up on, Ella. That uh, That he definitely seemed more high energy reading that story. Did you not? Yeah. No, I think that he's certainly putting in the effort. Um, and I, you know, I don't think, obviously, like, that's a long day. And you have to, you have to be high energy in order to get through a 12-hour day and multiple 12-hour days of campaigning. So I certainly don't think that he is not trying. Um, but I don't know I, if it will actually pay off. I just think someone should just take, you know, take a little bit of of mercy on these I mean can you imagine I when I am 69 years old or I mean 74 that's 74 se- you know you know Bernie's 74 like Hillary's 68 or 69 you know Jeb's certainly into the his 60s as well I don't want to be spending 12 hour days schlepping around at you know states campaigning it seems really difficult well not only that I couldn't do it now it, you could do it but if you were like even the slightest grumpy or if you make the slightest misstep you know the world is so overly critical of you it's not just that they do four five six public events interspersed with media interviews and all that it's that they got to do it all perfectly really right because the downside there are there are a great many pitfalls well and especially now where everyone has their smartphone and twitter and everything like that and literally any moment can be captured and if you're not careful you will become a a, car- a caricature on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yes, as we were we were noting of all of the Republicans and the uh, the SNL uh, sketch about the that uh, December fifteenth debate in Las Vegas. Um, I think we should also take a note here to pay tribute to one of the recently uh. fallen GOP candidates. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham suspended his campaign yesterday. I don't think that the media collectively have been more sad that someone was dropping out of the race than they were yesterday because he was just a fun guy. Like, he was just kind of, uh, you know, he was just fun to be around. He, like, clearly was not doing well. Very few people (laughs) knew who he was on the campaign trail, but uh, he was just kind of a hoot, so... I think my image of, of Lindsey Graham from this, this campaign, and this is actually even before the campaign proper started back in April um, when, I, when I saw the, uh, the, when I was watching the GOP cattle call down in Nashua, one of the first events of the year basically, and you had in one hall, 
you know, Trump was coming in. And this was when most people just totally dismissed Donald Trump. And yet, you know, Trump was going down the hall and had this gigantic entourage and then reporters and supporters and everybody kind of following along, listening to everything. And that was that was going one direction. And then in the other direction, there was Lindsey Graham with maybe like a couple of like would-be staffers and no one was talking to him or like even recognized that he was was anybody at this event at all. And um thing is I can say that about Lindsey Graham, you know, there were also there are a number of other kind of smaller would-be GOP candidates. It was exactly the same situation, you know, Jim Gilmore, John Bolton, who never right. even ran, who it was the same thing, but I, I do remember the I mean, it was literally, you know, Trump and, and uh, Graham ships in the night yeah. passing one another. Um, and that's that's really been kind of the, the way it's been since the beginning. Um, Absolutely. Although, of course, Lindsey Graham also brought John, John McCain back to New Hampshire a bunch, which people did enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I got to spend a, a day on the trail with them, which was fun. I heard a lot of crazy stories. What, what do you think Lindsey Graham was actually trying to do? With this campaign. I mean, um, I, I think most people assumed from the beginning that it, he was not like the likeliest candidate yeah, to, I to mean, win. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly, I mean, he obviously has foreign policy expertise and, and that was mostly what he was talking about. And that was the other kind of funny standout thing about Lindsey Graham is that he was like the most jovial, fun, funny guy and with like the bleakest message being like, we have to put, you know, troops in the ground or we're all going to, you know, ISIS is going to kill us all, basically. Um, Happy warrior. Yeah. That was it. A literal happy warrior. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I don't know. I could see him sort of jockeying for, you know, some sort of cabinet position or, or something like that. He certainly has the chops to, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if I would necessarily want Lindsey Graham as Secretary of State, but that's sort of the most obvious thing that I can think of. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think too. Know. You know, he his run was maybe a refuge. It was was kind of left over from a time when, you know, there was concern that the the race was not going to be about foreign policy at all. You know, because it was a very domestically for you know, because you know, as as short as time as you know, seven eight months ago, everyone thought it was going to be very you know, economy focused, jobs, all of that sort of stuff. That's one of the reasons why you have governors, a lot of governors in, entering the race, and I think maybe to an extent that was part of what Lindsey Graham wanted to do is simply raise the profile of these right. these kinds of issues. But of course, you know, current events always have a way of kind of making races very different than people anticipate that they that they'll be. And, and certainly the, the rise of ISIS and kind of the domestic terror attacks and the like have really reshaped how, you know, how both the Democrats and the Republicans um, are, shape, are, are choosing their candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think Lindsey Graham was in a way still too hawkish, even after that. Mm-hmm. You know, people still don't want somebody to say, let's bring boots on the ground into, into Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's look now. We're going to probably um, well, actually, actually, we're, we're we will have a podcast next week. We're not going to go go away. Uh, this Donald is just Trump a, will be in New Hampshire on Monday at Nashua. I don't know if he's at the high school or. But it's going to be kind of a a, a low key probably next week or so, as as most people are celebrating uh, Christmas. Speaking of low-key, yes, uh, this Thursday we will have the Ben Carson Day in the Life in our <laughs> newspaper. Okay. Reporter. Who followed? Who followed? Yeah, who followed? Nick Reed Nick. was with Ben and Candy yesterday. 
They had three events, which is somewhat unusual for the Carson campaign. He usually follows the the Trump style, which is he comes in for a single event and then leaves. I believe the last time he was here was when he filed for office. And so he came back to New Hampshire. He had three different events, including a uh, kind of a Christmas performance at the Capitol Center for the Arts. I see. Yes. So uh, Nick was there for that, and uh, I wasn't able to follow up with him on his impressions from last night because he called in sick today with a stomach bug. Well, that's too I bad. Tell you what my too much, impressions too were. much Christmas goose, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, maybe too too many enthusiastic Carson supporters altogether. Um. But I don't know. Um, I think that's that's pretty much it. We've talked about Star Wars. We've talked about uh, Democratic and Republican uh, presidential debates. We've said goodbye to Lindsey Graham. Mm. Well, Lindsey Graham, who was coined Goose. Of, was he? Was he? <laughs> by Ella in her day in the life because she spent the day with... John McCain. Was he Goose or? Oh, yeah, he was Goose and John McCain was Maverick. Yeah, so she gave them, she said that they were like Goose and Maverick on the campaign trail, or Maverick and Goose rather. And so because because McCain calls himself a political Maverick, that was the, uh, the play on words there. So that makes Lindsey Graham Goose. goose. Talk to me, Goose. <laughs> <laughs> why, Goose? Why? There are no words right now so <laughs> with that all being said john unless you have something else to spring on me at this point have a have a merriest of christmases well i thank you clay may the force be with yes, you yes <laughs> and also with you and ella happy holidays and all of that kind of joy joyful nonsense to you as well thank you clay you too Thanks for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast series through iTunes or Stitcher. Take care, have a wonderful holiday season, and we'll see you next week.